from Coast to Coast to Coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. My name is Sophia Osborne, and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're starting with this year's not funny April Fool's headline about climate change in Canada. And we'll finish by giving you a brief rundown on Alberta politics, a snapshot of election platforms, how to vote, and why you should. But first, headlines. You might have woken up on April Fool's to the news that Canada's average temperatures are increasing at twice the global rate. I wish I could tell you this is a joke, but unfortunately, it's not. Canada's Changing Climate Report was written by 43 federal and university-based scientists and is a two-year mass review of published literature. The report can be accessed at changingclimate.ca. Here are the main takeaways. In the past 70 years, The global average temperature has risen 0.8 degrees, while Canada's average temperature over the same time frame has risen 1.7 degrees, about twice the global rate. On top of that, northernmost environments are experiencing a 2.3 degree rise, resulting in melting permafrost and increasingly thin and risky ice on rivers and oceans. This is impacting animals like caribou, whose young are drowning in rivers that are flowing earlier. It's also impacting people, particularly Inuit, who are losing their homes and traditional ways of living. The report also identifies an increase in rain across the country, particularly in winter, increasing the risk of flooding disasters which we've already experienced here in Alberta. Increased fire risk is also expected, as extreme heat events are becoming increasingly common. Many of us here in Canada crack jokes in the face of climate change, saying things like, at least it'll be warmer, But this report is a wake-up call. Negative effects of climate change will certainly impact Canadians as floods, extreme temperatures, melting permafrost, increased avalanche risk, and wildfires become more and more common. But still, this report is not a reason to despair. It concludes that, though it is too late to stop climate change, worst-case scenarios can still be avoided if citizens raise their voices and unite to demand change from corporations and governments. This is Hannah Cunningham reporting from the very sunny quad at the University of Alberta to let you know that throughout this episode, we will be playing a few pieces of work from poet Alice Major, who Tarrant Informers Dylan Hall and Amanda Rooney had the opportunity to interview in August of 2018 about her book called Welcome to the Anthropocene. This first piece is entitled Red Sky, and at the end of the episode, we will play Medias Res. This is Red Sky, read by Alice Major. Red Sky at January, grey dawn sky. The air is warm, unseasonable, softening the snow that seemed invincible just yesterday. The ravens cronk in mild surprise, as if to thank the god of thaw. The furnace stalk. And in its wake of silence, thoughts sift and stir like cat hair shifting in the quieted air. Thoughts, of course, of gratitude 
her ices release and the beatitudes floated out by chickadees. Blessed are we who have survived the minus 20 of the last harsh weeks. But gently the sky turns red and that means warning. Not right now, not on this soft morning. Danger is not so imminent as that. But there are incidents and auguries that show how change is in the forecast. The winter's getting strange. The future's birth cord is being twisted into being, and we are complicit in the spiral, the furnace starting up again, and I. We're revisiting one archive piece that highlights community resilience in the face of the 2013 flooding in Calgary. Tara informed us Chris Chang and Phillips was in Calgary recently and was thinking about the Sunnyside neighborhood where he has some family history. It experienced some of the worst flooding during the disaster in June and most people had only hours to evacuate their homes. He stopped at one home with a tiny library in the front lawn and met Sunnyside resident Tamara Lee. On top of maintaining the Pooh Corner Little Free Library, she's a bit of a community hub, and she's helped organize the Bow to Bluff citizen-led development process in the neighborhood. I took a Pierre Burton. Hi. He's from Edmonton. I have a microphone. I'm. I, a I help produce a radio show called Terra Informa. Okay. And I'm he really happened to be looking water. at the little free library, and I'm like gabbing to Sandra about <laughs> container and stuff. So I just wanted to show him the East Sunnyside site because his mom used to live in Sunnyside, okay. and he wanted to talk to people about their experience um, with the flood. So this is the site you want. It's pretty random, I tell you. We've been here for 25 years. <laughs> I actually grew up in this district. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Hmm. So this is what you want, East Sunnyside survivors. And the 2013 deluge. Yes. And um, they started this site after the big flood, where, I don't know if you've seen the map, but most of Sunnyside got flooded on the east side. We are among very few blocks that were very lucky. And like I said, we got a foot of water in our garage as well. Um, but they started this site because Sunnyside is one of these really active uh, neighborhoods where people just come together and do stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's like a neighborhood of entrepreneurs or something. So after the flood, it was probably one of the most highly functioning um, neighborhoods in crisis in Calgary. Mm. So um, they started up this Facebook page and everything's on here, like they're sharing information about which insurance companies are covering what. Um, they've had meetings with the city because unfortunately they re-flooded. We had a sort of flash rainstorm Oh my gosh. and the city had closed the drainage gates, the outfalls, because their predictions said that the river was going to rise because there was enough rainfall upstream that they thought the river was going to come into the community again, but it was actually the other way around. We had rain on the community and we needed to, you know, have that drain out into the river here. Oh. So, of course, in the big flood, 
when the river rose, right, they had to close the gates to protect us against the river rising because uh, what I've heard is it was like the Bow River was like Niagara Falls going sideways. It was that fast. The cubic meters per second wow. were like Niagara Falls. Um, it was something like 1,700 or 1,800 cubic meters per second. And the volume was, well, I've heard as high as eight times its volume. Wow. It was crazy, or three from three or eight. I'm not quite and sure the statistics. It was you were crazy. on the Center Street Bridge when that was happening. Like, did you could you at four thirty on how Thursday? Fast the water was going. Yeah, and I could feel it slamming the bridge. And there's a stoplight. Have you been on the lower deck? Yeah, it's quite low to the water. Yeah, you know, and usually it's quite nice. And I'm looking out there, and Princess Island's sort of underwater, and you know, just your little spidey senses. Like I hadn't heard anything. I hadn't heard that Mission or Inglewood had been evacuated before us, or or whoever. It was just like, something's really wrong. And I've lived in this river valley all my life. Uh, was born in a house just across the river, and I played, you know, by the river, in the river, whatever, all my life. And I just knew, I thought, you know, maybe we should go to higher ground. We should go to Katie's godparents in Brentwood, <laughs> just for overnight. Like, nobody thought we'd be evacuated for days and days. And as I said, we were really lucky. We were only out for three days. In for those of us who didn't actually get flooded, had um, power and, and uh, gas and, and water and didn't have sewage backup. We were allowed back after three days. But my neighbors, you know, some of them were out for probably over a week. Mm. Some of the houses still aren't really habitable. I know one of my friends, just heartbreaking, like water up to the ceiling. And what does everyone store in their basements? All their memories. Photo albums, yeah. memories, identity. So this flood, I mean, it's not just, some people who weren't affected are like, oh, it's just stuff, you can replace it. But a lot of stuff we stick in basements is not really replaceable. So it's not just a loss of memory, there's a feeling of sort of loss of identity. There's a feeling of loss of trust, uh, loss of security, loss of a sense of place in 48 hours, 72 hours, right? Mm. It was all gone. It was bizarre. It was unbelievable because everything happened so fast. The funniest thing is that the great success of Calgary rested on social media and our civic leadership. I got to say, Mayor Nenshi, oh, he is so totally awesome. And Alderman Farrell and, you know, Alderman Marr and Jean-Carl Carra and these guys whose wards were affected and our, our um, emergency chief and the disaster guy who plans all the, the disaster plan worked. You know, I mean, it could have been so much worse. If we hadn't got notice, there could have been lives lost, mm -hmm. right? But this, this town really pulled together in the way that I have to say, I'm not trying to suck up here or anything, but in the way I've always admired about Edmonton, because <laughs> it seems like a really close-knit community. You guys have great festivals. It's like you have a really long winter with no Chinooks, but you all seem pretty close and together. And sometimes to me, having been born here, it feels like, there are so many people here from other places and there's not a lot of bonding and everybody's here just to work and then, you know, go home or something and not invest here. But all that changed with the flood. And a lot of long time Calgarians like me feel, wow, you know, we actually did have community and it all just came together in those few days. And in ways that you hadn't seen that yeah, it would be there? Before. Like total strangers helping strangers. Because we weren't flooded out, when we came home, we unpacked. We had our little shock trauma cry, and then we went out and we helped people, not only in our community. And our community was so high-functioning, we thought, 
we need to go find people, you know, who need us more, like seniors in their own homes and stuff. Mm. And uh, so we went down to a couple in Elbow Park who are retired, and uh, their house, they didn't just get it in the basement, they're in a heritage house, beautiful, right by the Elbow River, and they got it like two or three feet up in their main um, living room area and such. Hmm. And so one of the things I was doing, we were all mucking out basements, you know, they got like mm, about seven, eight inches of mud, river mud, all through stuff. The, the, this couple, had, they've been in that house for over 40 years. They've been married this year for 50. You know, it was probably their first house. They, wow. they raised their children in that house. One of the toughest days was I was packing their wedding crystal from their wedding 50 years ago. And apparently um, their... Um, her father was an antique art dealer so the crystal was antique when he gave it to them for their wedding and I've never handled stuff like this and it survived the flood like there wasn't anything broken but here I am in gumboots the house is a mess I'm trying not to trip over stuff everything's <laughs> everywhere and they give me this job and I've got gloves on I've got a mask and I'm thinking if I drop a piece of this crystal she is going to have a nervous breakdown on me. Oh my gosh. Right? And she was there washing her wedding china in the sink. That china was actually in a lower cupboard. The crystal was up higher, so it didn't actually get dirty. So I was just like bubble wrapping it and trying not to drop anything. The china was in a lower cabinet and it was filthy. Like the river washed through all these plates and things. Nothing broke. Wow. Right? Wow. Not, I mean, they're Italian. There were like a hundred plates. Nothing <laughs> broke. There are a lot of people, and especially young people, they just wanted to go and help. I got I to gotta give it to the young people. There's one middle-aged guy, he said, are these the teenagers that I'm always complaining about? Because <laughs> they just came like an army, and they're still down in High River, and they've been incredible. But they don't always know that, you know, uh, we saw people in shorts, people in sandals or flip-flops. We're like, yeah, do you realize what I did biochemistry? Do you realize what's <laughs> It's not good, you know, people without masks or gloves. And the thing is, a lot of other people wanted to help by feeding the army of volunteers. So they were bringing food down into these areas, and I'm like, how are we going to wash our hands? Mm -hmm. You know, after a while, people realize we should bring wipes or something, because there's no water, there's no sanitary yeah. conditions, and we're eating these sandwiches, right? Like, you were talking about seeing white caps, like, basically from your street. Did you yeah. know how susceptible this area was to flooding? Because it has flooded, I heard, before. Yes. In a major way. Um, not as major as this. <laughs> I've never seen the river rise like that. Um, in my lifetime, I have seen it rise pretty high, but we always thought we were pretty safe. And there was one realtor, I think he's quite well known in Elbow Park. His house got flooded. But he says in 20 years, he's had one inquiry about floodplains. One? Yeah, one. It's probably from a guy in Winnipeg, right? <laughs> I know it. Because all the Winnipegers around here, now we all know who's from Winnipeg. They're like, yeah, we knew, you know, and they're all <laughs> up on the hill. But most people don't think about that. And because our city, you know, blame the Northwest Mounted Police, it's their fault, right? Colonel McLeod and the F Troop. But they settled at the confluence of the bow and the elbow. And you know, it's not like they had water hauling pipes or anything back then. People settle near water. Mm. The interesting thing about Calgary is, unlike many cities in the world, where it's the poor who live in her city. And I'll tell you, I'm old enough, and my parents were poor enough that in, you know, in my time, and I'm not going to say this to the microphone, in my time, uh, it was the poor who lived down here. 
and um, way back when people wanted the the dream was to live out in the suburbs to live in Brentwood or Edgemont or Silver Springs or something like that but it was you know kind of a rundown area back then the difference is now because of Calgary's kind of unique history in the oil industry and everything everybody wants to live near the river and it's become this really trendy cool very expensive now you can jog to work play yes people have discovered it really is location 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 right and so um, little businesses are down here and all the little cool restaurants and people want to live down here. I think they will still want to live down here, mm. but we want flood mitigation. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we will be floodproofing our home, right, and all that stuff. Uh, there has to be some pretty major infrastructure um, in terms of flood mitigation. Mm. Golly, a flood dam upstream would be really nice <laughs> or something major, certainly berms. Uh, the drainage system is like a hundred years old yeah you know that's that's a lot of money but it has to be looked at because now we're getting mm. pretty weird weather yeah and we have built the entire city downtown everything on this river it's not going to move like they're not moving downtown to varsity <laughs> there are people who think that the zoo should not be rebuilt on the island and i'm like so where do you think we're going to put this like are we going to displace people on the hill mm. You know, we don't have that. So we have to deal with what we have. Hmm. Right. And I, I honestly think that we can do that. But no, it's not going to make everybody happy. Yes, we'll probably have a few more disasters. But uh, right now, everybody's hearts are in the right place. That was Tamara Lee a resident of Calgary's Sunnyside neighborhood, sharing her experiences in the days after the flooding. Her Bow to Bluff citizen-led engagement process recently won the Canadian Institute of Planners National Innovation Award for 2013. Find out more about this remarkable community on our website, terrainforma.ca. That was Chris Chanyan Phillips speaking with Calgary resident Tamara Lee about her experience in the Calgary flood. In Medias Res. Alas, poor child, you're born in Medias Res. The stage is set with swirling depictions of a globe in panic, small rainbow-colored frogs hopping into oblivion, a scene of smoggy atmospheres, vast jars of plastic churning in the ocean, Scylla and Charybdis, sailors screaming from their boats, Soldiers raising fists, battle-dressed for costumed wars. And you have got to figure out the script. It's that recurrent nightmare of being unprepared, of never having studied, and now it's curtain time. That dream is just our human situation, the only plot we've got in this play without an author. We're writing it ourselves. And I can't help you. I am just another figure in the chorus of graying heads, wringing her hands or pointing to a star. Sorry to be useless, but that is what we are. Dear child of fortune, born today into the middle of things, 
break a leg. Don't look for gods descending in a basket or prompters in the wings. Declaim one memorable soliloquy, turn a spotlight, or pick up pelting litter from the stage. There is no ending, happy or otherwise. Just play your part. That was Medias Res by poet Alice Major. Alberta's provincial election day on April 16th is swiftly approaching. Believe it or not, it's already four years after the 2015 election, when the new Democratic Party, also called NDP, led by Rachel Notley, unseated the 44-year rule of the progressive conservative dynasty, the longest political reign by a single party in Canadian history. The upcoming election will determine whether the NDP's win in 2015 was a mere blip or if it demonstrates a larger shift in the province. We're going to provide a brief selection of the platforms of the United Conservative Party, or UCP, and the NDP, as the two parties most likely to win. However, we do encourage you to learn more about other parties, such as the Alberta Party, the Liberal Party, the Freedom Conservative Party, and the Green Party. If you are confused and want to learn how your own political beliefs are reflected by party platforms, we recommend checking out Vote Compass, a tool provided by the CBC and developed by political scientists that calculates how your views compare with those of Alberta's political parties. Now for a brief rundown on election issues. One of the most contentious issues between parties right now is the carbon tax. The UCP has pledged to scrap the carbon tax and said they will return to a system used before 2016 that only taxes large emitters at $20 per ton rather than the current $30 per ton. However, if the UCP does form government and repeals the carbon tax, the federal government will impose their own carbon tax. Jason Kenney has said he will then take Ottawa to court, but critics have said the court fight would be expensive and is unlikely to succeed, as it is within the federal government's jurisdiction. Conversely, the NDP would maintain the carbon tax currently in place, which is committed to discretionary spending on climate change adaptation. The carbon tax so far has paid for a $220 million tax cut for small businesses, funded the expansion of Calgary's C-Train and Edmonton's LRT, funded reskilling for workers in trades, and funded other programs aimed at transitioning Alberta away from fossil fuel dependence. In terms of the overall Albertan economy, both the UCP and NDP have promised to balance the budget by 2024, but both promises fully depend on global demand for oil, which is highly uncertain. The UCP pledges a 4% tax cut for businesses over four years, dropping from 12 to 8%, which they hope will spur job creation in the province. But to balance the budget and account for lower corporate tax rates, they would freeze spending on education and health care. On the flip side, the NDP promises to cap Alberta's childcare costs at $25 per child per day to help parents, especially women with young children, be able to return to work. They also hope to attract investment in Alberta with a plan for economic diversification, though, as is also the case with investment in oil, 
they aren't able to guarantee how investors will act in the future. Education has also been a hot topic this election cycle. The UCP has pledged to scrap the School Act and the current curriculum review being undertaken by the NDP. They are planning to reintroduce the old Education Act from 2012. This would reinstate standardized testing for children in grade 1, 2, and 3, and has received significant backlash from the Alberta Teachers Association, who argue that this plan is the opposite of what research suggests is good for students. Additionally, the Education Act would remove privacy protections for LGBTQ students implemented by the NDP in Bill 24, which currently protects students who join gay-straight alliances by making it illegal for teachers to report their membership to their parents. The NDP would maintain the current school act and has promised to increase education funding just ahead of inflation. Lastly, in terms of health care, the major issues being discussed are the UCP's plans to open the market to private health care providers in an effort to reduce public health care wait times by allowing those who can afford it to access private services. They also argue that this will reduce bureaucratic bloat and inefficiencies in the healthcare system. The NDP have pledged to cover all prescription drug costs for middle and low income seniors and introduce a pilot program of two storefront mental health clinics in Edmonton and Calgary. On most issues, the Alberta Party has placed itself in the middle ground as a party committed to being socially progressive like the NDP, but fiscally conservative like the UCP. Now, why should you vote? Historically, the largest voter turnout was 81.8% in 1935, while the smallest voter turnout was 40.6% in 2008. In 2015, voter turnout was 57.7%, but even then, 40% of Alberta's population didn't vote. This voter turnout is divided along generational lines. Millennials now constitute the largest demographic in the Canadian population, but in previous elections, a disproportionately small number of youth voted. According to Elections Alberta, in 2015, voters aged 18 to 24 represented 12% of the population, but only made up 7% of voters. Those above 65 represented 15% of the population, yet made up 21% of voters. Why are so few people voting? Most people who don't vote choose not to because they don't believe their vote counts. But even a 5% increase in voter turnout could change the outcome of this election and the future of Alberta. Maybe you feel like no party fully represents you or your political ideals. However, the only way we can improve this complicated system we call democracy is by actively engaging with it. There are many reasons to vote that aren't simply feeling a deep commitment for the entire platform of a political party. You can strategically vote for or against a party, but the key thing is that your voice does matter. Elections Day is April 16th, 2019. Advanced polling is taking place from April 9th to 13th. You are eligible to vote if you are a Canadian citizen, at least 18 years of age, and an ordinary resident of Alberta. You must register to vote, which can be done online at voterlink.ab.ca. You will need a piece of government-issued ID with a photograph, current address, and name to register. All forms of authorized identification can be found at elections.ab.ca.
And that's all the time we have for this week. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, which is part of Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Diné, and many other First Peoples who continue to live and gather here and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet at Terra Informa. Thank you to all our volunteers that contributed to this week's episode. Hannah Cunningham, Dylan Hall, Amanda Rooney, and Elizabeth Dowdell. I've been your host, Sophia Osborne. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope to catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. Terra Informa.